0: Thank you very much. Um, I see I got the, uh, the much sought after after lunch slot. So I hope you guys are not going to uh, resort to a carb induced sleep uh, as part of this talk. So maybe we can blow some cobwebs off. Uh, first of all, me, uh, my name is Stuart Eccles. I am the founder of Made By Many. We are uh, a 10-year-old kind of consultancy and digital product studio that helps organizations, large organizations, bring um, bring new digital products to life in the market. Uh, yes, I am British, and by the laws of Hollywood, that means I am both smart and evil. And I want you to bear that in mind as we uh, as we move forward. And, and before anyone asks, yes, I'm upset about Brexit. Um, so we were early, and we were committed to Lean Startup. We've been doing it for seven years now, and we've been applying those tools and techniques in what we do uh, since then. We have seen. Uh, we've held lots of companies. We have seen uh, hundreds of ideas. We've spoken to thousands of users about those ideas, and uh, we've even launched a few products. So it, uh, I often I did some analysis a, a couple of years ago and said that our success rate was somewhere around 36%. So you know, if you hire us, one in three chance you will get your product to market. Uh, I'm okay with that. Uh, so some of the things we've done, we launched a a uh, digital classical music only streaming service for universal music. We launched a um, universal global uh, educational tool with Skype called Skype in the Classroom that connects over a million uh, children worldwide for virtual field trips. Uh, we launched an award-winning news program and we wa- launched a glowing uh, sound producing ball that teaches kids to code. Uh, on Kickstarter. It's been three years in development and launched yesterday, one year late, proving that hardware is hard. Don't do it. <laughs> um, so this is not my normal stump speech. I have a normal speech that I do about Lean Startup and talk about. It's not what I'm going to talk about. This is entirely new content, and I've never talked about this in public before. So, you know, bear with me. It's not a much refined idea, but I want to talk about elephants. Uh, I want to talk about elephants in rooms. I want to talk about lean startup, and some perceived and possibly real issue uh, that I've seen in the last uh, seven years and really hasn't gone away and kind of still exists and troubles me to some degree. Um, So, you know, we're increasingly seeing people open to to the ideas of lean startup as, as those years are going on. Back in 2009, this was an incredibly new uh, concept. And it, you know, people like slowly got into it. But you know, as these years go on, it's got more popular. We hear more about it until it almost seems that everyone has already had some, some version of this thing. I was, I was literally in a kickoff meeting uh, with a client, you know, running through the usual stuff we do. And he said, I'm going to stop you right there. You know, I want to tell you right now, we all read the same books. So like there's nothing new about what you're talking about. Okay, I'm, so I'm okay with that. That's that's been gone. But I think you know at this conference I've heard you know a lot of the same stuff I heard four years ago, and a lot of stuff about MVP experimentation. It's all good. It's all great. It's great to hear that. But I want to talk. Uh, I want to talk about weaknesses. I want to talk about some of the things that aren't great and and how that works. And I want to talk about. I want to talk about one thing in particular. the tension that isn't answered that even came... It's come up a few times, and I kind of see it, and I've heard it for so long. So this is one part of what I've seen, and Eric Reid's called it the, yeah, but what about Steve Jobs problem? Right. Like in 2009. And, we, and I, I think everyone's heard this to some degree, right? Everyone's heard to some degree the, well, Apple never talks to customers. Uh, someone's heard the Henry Ford quote of, like, well, if I asked people what they want, they would have said faster horses, which he never said, by the way. That's an absolute thing. Um, and we heard, it, we heard it yesterday. We heard it, and Guy Kawasaki said, said, you know, number one, like, you know, customers can't tell you what you want, right? And we quickly and mentally trans- easily translate that to, okay, so it's useless to talk to customers. But hold on a second. Isn't that the opposite of lean startup? Aren't we about customer development? Aren't we about validating? Aren't we about talking to customers? But then on the other side, we hear this narrative, this narrative about innovation, disruptive innovation, entrepreneurship, is about, it's created by, you know, people who refuse to accept reality. Uh, these are the people, these are the contrarians, the contrarian ideas, the people who, uh, who are about inventing the future, the beat the odds. You know, it's Steve it's, it's, it's Jobs, it's the, it's the crazy ones. So we have this kind of, think about like, that you might have to be crazy to have a great idea. And you might have to be, in some way, out of touch with reality to do so. And I've been, I've seen, organizations that are on the kind of more crazy-is-good scale of it, especially in the advertising agency world. For whatever's worked at the advertising agency, crazy is good. Um, and you have be in a meeting and, like, you know, have all these ideas, and people will say, you know, you'll say, well, this, this doesn't work. It's crazy. They'll go, yes, but is it just so crazy it might work? But, so I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, we, we, we don't live in this world. We are methodical. Uh, We we have a scientific method for doing product development. That's why we're here. We have a five-step innovation process, and we have a process, logo that looks like a infinity symbol. We've got to sort it. So I ask myself, like, is that always true? And, you know, I think everyone here who's done SmartVlean Startup can look, look deep inside themselves and say, well, yeah... Maybe we haven't been as successful as we wanted to be. Maybe we haven't seen the results we want to do. Um, recently, so this year, I, I talked to a VP of digital innovation at one of the biggest brands in the world. And they've been doing Lean for a while. And he, he, he said something like, well, it's like trying to boil uh, a big blue, big blue ocean, like one smes- uh, smoke test at a time. It's like we, you know, we have lots of ideas, and we're doing all these tests, but, but they lead practically nowhere. Um, It's really slow. We don't feel like we're, you know, gathered around a a single subject. You know, we're we're not really getting anywhere. And I know, like, a fair few kind of entrepreneurs who look at this kind of approach to enterprises and go, this isn't going to work. It's too risk-averse. It's too compromised. We're going to eat your lunch, right? Like, like, somebody in the entrepreneurial market, look at the enterprise, trying to launch in their space and go, you know, you know, it's great that you're trying to do this stuff with entrepreneurial space, but you don't have the supported vision of follow-through. It's not going to work. At the same time, um, another, another version of this which often happens in innovation spaces is that they actually get as far as to launch something and then they can't move the needle. Because in the enterprise, your, your needle moving is huge, right? You're talking like 10 million basic uh, with a 60% gross margin before you've even kind of like got the, the sign off to go ahead and do your project you've got to move that needle you can't wait you know, forever for that uptick and you don't have any idea how that is kind of leveraging up to a bigger idea of how it's going to change, that, change your business at a fundamental level it is just not coming out as visionary so I'm trying to reconcile these ideas in my head um, this has always been my kind of favorite Eric Ries quote, by far. And I've used it for so much time. I think it's the one that sums up and neatly describes Lean Startup for everyone. And it's always this idea of, like, we have a vision uh, that's big enough to matter. It's well-articulated. It's shared by the whole team. It's great. And then we go about finding which aspects of it are grounded in reality through testing, through MVPs, through experimentation. And we find, you know, and we find and we iterate and we move forward. But in some ways, I've always felt like you know, Eric assumed that the vision came to the table first, that the vision was, you know, an entrepreneurial vision created by an entrepreneur, because, you know, why else would you be an entrepreneur if you had a vision of what you wanted to do? Well, in enterprise, we still struggle with this issue. We still don't have to have, we don't have the entrepreneurial vision. We don't have the sole entrepreneur. We have to get a collective organizational entrepreneurial vision that we're all going to kind of start from. And to get any kind of collective consensus inside an organization requires some kind of process. It doesn't magically appear. It requires process and consensus, and that's a whole different kind of fundamental problem. So when I kind of go and work with a lot of organizations, and they they say, well, we want to test this product, or we want to work with this, we want to iterate this. Uh, I kind of like often try and like do a five wide process and look back and say, okay, so, so where did this come from? Why, you know, why are we doing this rather than something else? Where did this idea originate? Okay, so, so this is a brainstorm. Okay, where, what fo- led you to have that brainstorm beforehand? Uh, these are my most common as- answers. Uh, it came back from a management offsite, and uh, Like it was handed down from on high on, on some tablets. Uh, the CEO or CIO uh, read about it in flight magazine, or some version of, uh, of that. Uh, and the, the most popular one, which is consultants, which I think is uh, a kind of circular loop of me as a consultant asking where ideas come from, and the answer is consultants. I mean, it will just go on forever. Um, but invariably, uh, it is not a structured process, right? It's not a thing where uh, you can kind of repeatedly test and validate the idea of where, of where that vision came from. And usually, it's not a lack of ideas we have. It's not a lack of, I think Mark mentioned earlier, like, like a lot of people in the organizations, they know kind of things they, they could do or should do. They don't have a lack of ideas. They have a lack of a framework for prioritizing them and a framework for aligning the organization around why this idea is a better idea than the other one. There's not really about, you know, I said creative idea generation, but that was like the hook that got you all here, and then like I was just gonna say, it's not about idea generation, it's about understanding that some ideas are gonna be better than the others because they fit within a vision of our organization. So my question is, does Lean Startup have the answers for that problem as well? In fact, the real answer is, the question I'm asking is, is Lean Startup a grand unifying theory. And in two thousand twelve, I was here at Lean Startup Conference, and Eric Ries had uh, had a conversation with, with Mark Andreessen. And he, he, Mark Andreessen said he, he liked Lean Startup because it was a grand unifying theory. It was, you know, was it really something that unified the big idea, the you know, huge gravitational pull of uh, of um, Disruptive invention and actually unified with that, you know, unified that with the crazy the optimiz- Well, so the optimizations, the small things that we do every day that we iterate on quickly, is lean startup a concept that applies to both and does it apply both equally? And so, like, so this is like four years ago, and I'm thinking, yeah, is it? And it's taken, me, it's taken me probably four years of thinking. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that fast. I'm a slow, slow thinker. So I'm kind of ready now, after four years of thinking, to kind of talk about the grand unifying theory. And I think that Lean Startup is, uh, you know, my conclusion is that I feel like the things that we do in Lean Startup do apply to these, both these things. But we have to start treating how we do them differently. And we have to change some of the practices that have become embedded. Within a lot of the kind of lean startup coaching, a lot of a lot of the lean startup conferences that uh, and consultancies that, that I myself have been responsible for over the years. And I think we can start to bring together crazy big ideas and rational behavior. And I think if we can agree to one thing, it's that our visionaries, our crazy thinkers, are not irrational about the present. It's not that they are crazy works, it is that they are incredibly rational about the future. They have a strong belief system about the way the world is going to work, and then they, you know, go and kind of make it happen. And this kind of fits. this is this is new, right? This is this is this is this is what you've heard all you know many many times again. How many times have you've seen this, right? Wayne Gretzky quote, and that's a quote. This is the most used slide in history. <laughs> right? Everywhere. Look, Steve Jobs did this slide, did this quote. He's everyone's like, yes skate to where the park is is going to be. Yes. And my question is how? How do we skate to the park? I'm not Wayne Gretzky. (laughs) So, I want to talk a little about how. I want to talk about, like, this, this may not be right. This is kind of some of my theories about how we skate that park and how we start to use Lean Startup. We start to modify our thinking. Uh, some tactics and tools for doing so. So I'm going to redefine some, some ideas about like, what we need to do, and then go about to do it. So I believe that we have two problems. Uh, first of all, if successful innov- innovators believe there's a well-defined prediction of the future state of the world, our problem is, how do we go about coming up with a well-defined prediction? And then, how do we go about validating that prediction? This is Lean Startup, but I often feel that we fail in this area because counterintuitively, what people are doing right now is they're trying to use data from the present to validate the future, and they're failing, and they're wondering why. So, okay, if prediction is the key to everything, we start to think, you know, ask ourselves about a whole new set of skills that we have to become good at. We have to ask ourselves, like, okay, what makes for good predictions, and prediction's an incredibly hard thing to do to actually accurately predict the future. With technology changing so quickly, like it feels a new thing around the corner every, every day, many people have given up on the idea of predicting and they're saying, okay, let it come at us and we'll react to it as it does so. And that's almost like corporate strategy 101 right now, let the change come at us and we'll react. We can't do that. We have to predict, we have to forward fit the future, and we have to develop muscles for predicting what's gonna happen and then start to use our, tech, you know, our, lean startup techniques in that manner to validate predictions. Uh, so we're going to be wrong. We're going to be wrong a lot. We're going to make some bad predictions, but we're going we're to need to practice, and we're going to need some tools. So we ask ourselves, like, what are the tools of prediction? What, you know, what makes for good predictions? So I'm going to turn to the master of prediction, uh, Nate Silver. Right? Uh, who's read this book? This book is the best book about lean startup that does not talk about lean startup. Right? I'm going to sell a few dozen copies right now, but his ideas and his philosophies about how we go about uh, you know, making the decision and guesses about how the world works, uh, how we start to use evidence and data, his whole approach is that the essence comes into what real start, lean startup is and what analysis is. At the core, of what he, you know, his kind of philosophy about prediction is this idea of the fox and the hedgehog. And it's not a new idea. Uh, it comes from a 500 BC Greek, ancient Greek poet uh, called Archilochus, who said, a fox knows many things, but a hedgehog knows one important thing. And it was picked up again by Isaiah Berlin in the, in the 50s, who wrote an essay about it that said, um, there are two types of thinkers in the world. There are people with one great, you know, big idea. And, they, and they, 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 they are locked into how that idea affects things, how it affects the world, how it affects the future. And there are people who are foxes. And the foxes are people who take multiple sources and multiple input from everywhere. And, you know, they collide them and use those ideas to come up with their theories of how the world works. And uh, Nate Silvers goes into a lot of depth as to saying why... Foxes. People who take multiple sim- signals and inputs are much better about predicting the future. And anyone who's, you know, hugely into uh, kind of a 538 and is going to refresh it for the 80th time today will see that he has a fox logo, and that's because you know he's into this idea of the fox predictor. Uh, he makes a direct analogy, which I think is a fantastic, brilliantly in startup analogy to, to Moneyball. Who knows about Moneyball, right? Like, does anyone know about Moneyball? See the film, Brad Pitt. Great film, yeah. So, uh, when he talks about Moneyball, Moneyball was the idea of uh, applying you know, statistical analysis to baseball in a way that was better than uh, a scout's approach. Traditional approaches which were full of you know, tradition and ideas which weren't really validated with data. And he said, okay, you know, uh, the Oakland A's and you know, later uh, the Red Sox go and use this approach to, to outperform their rivals by analyzing data. So he said, so in this book, he talks about, like, the post-moneyball era of the Oakland A's. And the post-moneyball era, in fact, you know, he, he asked the answer question is, is, like, well, you know, now that statistics and data is a norm, do you spend less money on scouting? Do you do less scouting? And the answer is no. After, after the post-moneyball era, the Oakland A's spent far more money on scouting than they ever had before. And they said the, real, the realization was it's not about where the signals and the data came from. It could be equally as good being qualitative data from scouting as it can be quantitative data from stats. It's the way you brought that together and analyzed it as one holistic whole. That's where the actual advantage was. It's not that one part of data is better than the other. So this is kind of wrapped into this idea of like we can take and need to take many different thoughts and processes to the way we predict the future. So this is like a very simplified and you know, generalized model that lots of people say about how we can kind of come up with our visions for the future and use different approaches and different kind of ideas. Um, and the, oh, okay. The, the first one is, is really like, is about kind of societal shifts about, uh, you know, gender and economical and and demographical shifts within our markets, our environment, our world, big things, big trends that are happening over large amounts of time. Um, There's lots of data available and there's lots of trend reports you can get to help educate yourself in these areas, but there's also a lot you can collect on your own, we're gonna talk about later. So what we wanna do is we take societal shifts and then we kind of like take data inputs from what would be like leading edge businesses, businesses that are doing, um, new things with new distribution models that have invented new business models that might apply, that have new tactics and, um, towards, uh, towards how they kind of engage with customers as an input. And we take technology inventions, um, what is happening in machine learning, what is happening in uh, material science, what is happening in sensor technology, and what is happening in changes of production and logistics that change how technology has been applied. Uh, and our point now, then, is to force-fit all of these different inputs against the brand purpose. And I don't mean the business you're in. I mean, at the heart, what the, you know, the classic job you're doing for the customer the you know the making things cooler not being in the ice factory business, um, but you know getting people ice uh, to cool down their drinks. What is the purpose and fundamental kind of idea we're doing? What people tr- ha- have lots of trouble with is actually being experts in all of these fields. Right? it's very hard to be an expert in cultural shift and technology uh, invention and changes. And this is where we start to think about like diverse teams. This is where the d- diverse team model and the kind of ideas of having lots of partnerships and reaching out to lots of different institutions. Companies I know that are doing this very well have established vast networks of partnerships uh, that allow them to take uh, minority stakes in leading-edge businesses to learn inside data about those organizations. They also... Uh, they also have partnerships with leading-edge universities to understand technology shifts and technology is available before their competitors do. And they are able to, to like start marrying these things across their business and use that to really kind of drive where their, their vision and ideas come from. Uh, so that's you know, one thing where you know, we, we start reaching out and collecting more data than we ever have before. The other thing which I think is... Uh, incredibly useful to everyone in, in, in this room is uh, future no ethnographic research. And if that sounds made up to you, it, it totally is. I made it up uh, for this slide. Uh, but it's something we've done many times before in areas where it's really about uh, forward thinking technology. And here it's like, it's the classic design thinking t- technique is to research at the edges of, uh, of human behavior. It's to actually look beyond your normal set of people, beyond your mainstream, people who are massive users or, or really slight users and find out what they're doing. Uh, We want to research the exceptions and the rejectors. We want to research people who don't use your products or don't use those things at all. We want to research the early adopter because we know they will eventually indicate what the mainstream is about. And we want to research the young, and I mean that literally. I mean uh, great ideas of where the future and what people are doing are coming from, come from the young, and they come from the young at heart. If you don't research the young, you will never make the next Pokemon go Go. This is better summed up by my, by my wife. My wife is a researcher, and she says, talk to your next customer, not your best customer. And I think um, so many companies... Uh, fail because when they hear talk to the, your customer, it is, they interpret that as talk to the people who buy your products. And I'll say right now, stop talking to the people who buy your products. Stop talking to your customer and talk to your next customer who will eventually be your customer. There is very little point if you want to do real innovation about talking to your customer. The other thing we do a lot of now in uh, in people that is about future, re- future research, future audio research, is experience prototyping. What we want to do is fake an experience so that people believe the future is already here, and then we find out their reactions to it. So we're doing a, a fairly some, some, some prototype testing with some fairly advanced um, technology work that wasn't quite there. Uh, I had a team come back with some summary of the research, which was, I would never buy this app. I would never buy this. Because I can't, I don't really believe you would possibly do that, so I wouldn't buy it. And their summation was, I wouldn't buy it, right? And I said, this is the entire wrong idea of that response. You have to flip on their head. People say, I would never buy this, because I would not not believe it. If you made them believe that it's going to do the technology, and we know that it's going to be possible in a few years' time to do this, what you know, you can do that idea, you are going to blow their minds. And that is when you have disruptive innovation. Is when people believe that you can't possibly do it, and then you do. So, this is like a classic uh, kind of Clay Christian's dilemma idea. And this, 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 this exact, this, this kind of like a representation of disruptive innovation. I, I stole from Jesse Shell. Uh, it's going to use, which is basically this idea of like year one. You know, you talk to pe- you talk to your customers about your product. So you're on this top line here, right? Talk to your customers about your product, and they say, they say yeah, so, so what should we do with this product? Say, yes, great, it's great, make it better. Make it better, add this, add that, and you're like, great. great. You're gonna make it better. So year two, go back, talk to your customers about your product. They say, yes, great, just make it better, right? Like, you know, we need this, we need that. It'll be great. You're like, fantastic, so we're going to make it better. So just want to ask you, we've got this new thing, new thing that our competitor's are doing. Second line here. Uh, new thing that our competitor's are doing, and they're like, uh... You know, what do you, what do you think of that? And they're like, no, never going to use it. Never going to do it. It's awful. Hasn't got this. Hasn't got that. Hasn't got this. Doesn't do this. You're like, great. Great to hear. So year of year on, day you go and do it. You, you make it better. Come, come to next year and say, you say, like, okay, okay, so, so what should we do this next year? Like, we don't even use it anymore. We're using that thing. It's way better. And you're like, oh, my God, I just asked you a minute ago if this was going to work. And, and you said no. So some version of this in future research is always about... Understanding, like, not just the traction of how people experience things now, but the journey that they're going to be on when they come up. And that's because timing is everything, right? And timing in, in our businesses is absolutely everything we need to know about prediction. We have to nail timing. And I think there's very little in Lean Startup that is talk, you know, the talk and uh, everything we do about that, that is helping us understand where are you on this curve. Because if you are too early, and you launch a product and you see no traction, you're gonna, it's gonna get killed. If you launch too late, it's already too late and everyone's dominated the market and, and you're way behind. And I think, I think one of the things in enterprise now is that we're failing to understand what organizational timing we should, be, uh, we should be working from. Too often have I been asked to develop last year's application and I'm done with that. So you gotta face it now, like developing things in the enterprise uh, takes a long time. And my, my, my big fact is if your speed to market is longer than a window of opportunity, you're dead in arrival. If you can't launch a product in the time it takes for that entire market to develop, you, you might as well give up an innovation and just go to acquisition. Right? There's no point in developing it because you know, by the time you've had the next idea and got it to market, you've already lost. And that becomes my, my main rule of digital business. If a market can be won by two people in the garage, it will be won by two people in the garage. Uh, because if there are no barriers to putting, producing uh, any kind of application innovation, it will be won by the pers- people that can move it qu- most quickly. And that's why I believe these days that like, enterprises should only go about innovating in areas where there are huge barriers to entry. We have to stop doing simple things, simple apps, simple websites that are easy to launch, and instead focus on things that have high barriers to entry, because you will fail against the uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem, because let's face it, they can raise a million dollars faster than you can get a million dollars in internal budget sign-off. Okay, my final point. I'm running out of time, and I want to have a few questions. Uh, So my final point is is around portfolios. we understand that when we make things that, that our hypotheses are, are generated like as a, you know, many, broken down to many hypotheses. When we launched Compose, the classical music streaming service, uh, we thought that a dedicated classical service would work, uh, that there was a market for it, and that was made up of, uh, of hypotheses about what the customer was, what the features were. It was, those itself were made up of ideas about you know specific ideas like what the bit rate should be because because uh, classical music people love really high quality music so we have to do it at a higher bit rate. And we understand that like the signals flow upwards. That validating our smaller hypotheses help us understand that that our, our that our our product is going to is going to launch, but we also understand that we can quickly validate if uh, if if we are right about the quality of music, but it takes a while for us to understand, like, if our launching Compose was going to be successful. But Composed itself is actually part of a larger hypothesis, right? Composed was an idea that the Universal Music Group could and should uh, go into the direct-to-consumer market. And as such, when Composed failed, the question is, does it invalidate the fact that they should go into direct consumer market? Yeah, the is no, right? There's not enough signal, right? Just because one thing didn't work doesn't mean it had to. And that means we all have to develop portfolio models about uh, our larger hypothesis validation. We have to launch many things that fit our prediction of what the future would be. So as the future starts happening, we can then, uh, we can then gain signals from the things that we launch. Okay, this is my quick guide. Uh, so these are the takeaways. Uh, I want to encourage everyone to uh, stop thinking about the present, stop validating the present, and to start validating the future. I think you have to become futurists. And to do so, you need to be a fox. I think you need to research the future, and there's a few techniques there for researching the future. I think you should understand your timing limitations and really be serious about that. And I think you build a portfolio around your prediction. So that's it. I'm Stuart. You're awesome. Be futurists. Thank you. Good job. Good. Hey, had to come to uh, San Francisco to meet you, even though we're, we're based, uh, you'll have to come to the, to the event in London oh, in June too. <laughs> I actually live in New York now. Oh, okay. I, I had my own personal Brexit. Oh, very good. Okay. Well, uh, just a quick question, just uh, we've got, got time for one quick question. Um, let's take uh, the second one there. What is the ideal number and specialty composition of a top performing innovation team within enterprise? Uh, That's a great question. I don't think there's an ideal number. I don't think there's an ideal composition. It very much depends on what your business is and what it does. If you are in the business that requires material science and industrial design, um, then you need to have those. uh, Have those within the composition of the team. People at least have good understanding of those areas. I think what people are missing from composition now is the things that are going to be important in the future. So I think now, within our teams, we need to start include data scientists, specialists in algorithms and machine learning that can start to apply understanding of those areas, even though they're not, right now, the kind of core competency of, uh, of what a business is doing. Nice, great job. Uh, sure. What's the best way for the guys to, uh, here today to get in touch with you? I will be around, well, the rest of today and tomorrow. You can tweet at me, at Stuart Eccles. Okay. Uh, and on Slack. Cool. Okay. well thank you so much, Stuart Eccles. Excellent. Thanks thank so you. Good on you.